Good morning. It's Thursday, January 27th. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shimita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. Who's going to get the job next? In legal and political circles, that's the big question following the news that Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer plans to retire. The 83-year-old justice's exit gives President Biden the chance to make good on a promise to appoint a black woman. I think that Democrats tend to believe that representation matters, that experience matters. There has never been a black woman on the Supreme Court. That's Vox Supreme Court reporter Ian Milheiser. He explains nearly all of the recent justices have been federal appeals court judges. There are hundreds of federal appellate judges. Ten are black women. Biden nominated half of them. One is 51-year-old Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Milheiser says she's seen as a possible SCOTUS pick. She's a former public defender. I think she'd be the favorite of criminal justice reformers. She did some very good work when she served on the U.S. Sentencing Commission to make our drug sentences less draconian. She's not a a fire breather and she's not an extremist, but I think that she fits right in that sort of center of the Democratic Party liberalism that Biden has brought to most of his political decisions throughout his career. Now, Biden could also nominate a black woman from outside the federal system. That could be 45-year-old California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger. Kruger's reputation is that she is more cautious. She is more conservative, not in the sense that she's necessarily like aligned with Republicans, but just that she is very concerned about precedent, very concerned about slow incremental change on the judiciary. There are many other possibilities, but these two are widely seen as the frontrunners. By replacing Breyer, neither pick would change the court's conservative majority, but they're both young enough to have long careers ahead of them. So either could have influence on American law for decades. Cryptocurrency is becoming a flashy talking point among some of America's mayors. From Miami to New York and in smaller cities, too, mayors are trying to brand their cities as crypto hubs. But the data right now maybe doesn't support the dream. Prices for cryptocurrencies hit all-time highs in November, but since then, they've seriously cratered. At one point, $1.35 trillion in global value was just wiped out. Axios has details about how many mayors are talking up crypto and how much of that talk might just be hype. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez has been one of the loudest voices. He announced on Twitter that he wanted some of his salary in crypto. That got New York City Mayor Eric Adams saying he would do the same. And they exchanged a couple of friendly jabs on Twitter. You could almost picture them both sort of vying for the crypto crown. So, yeah, this was a little bit of a stunt. But real talk, this goes beyond pay stubs and Twitter spats. These mayors say cryptocurrency could be a way for cities to raise revenue and bridge the wealth gap. But the specifics on how they plan to do all that and hedge against major losses, that's unclear. Let's look at what's happening in Suarez's town. It has a cryptocurrency now, Miami Coin, which is run through a nonprofit where the city gets 30% of the revenue. As of November, 
The Miami Herald reports the coin earned the city more than $21 million. But in the last few months, Miami coin has lost value. This all goes back to something we talked about recently on this show. Being pro-crypto is something some Democrats and Republicans see as a smart move. It's volatile, yes, but it's also trendy among young voters. And being a champion of this technology, it can attract high earners to your city. Sometimes we make jokes about how slow and tedious government paperwork can be. But when you really need something and the bureaucracy is broken, it's suddenly not so funny. And when it comes to our immigration system, it's basically frozen for some people. Frozen because critical files are literally locked in underground caves. The Wall Street Journal explains this through the struggles of Chantel Wendt, who decided to apply for U.S. citizenship recently. Michelle Hackman is the journal reporter on this story. Really unluckily for Chantel, she decided to take that leap, you know, a couple months into the pandemic. And unbeknownst to her, she fell into this category of people where her immigration file, I guess, had been sitting long enough that it had been moved to this storage facility that then got locked for COVID. Yes, the paperwork required to finish her application was stuck in a government storage facility. And not just any facility limestone caves underneath Kansas City. Why caves, you might be asking? Well, the U.S. immigration system relies heavily on paper records, so they need a lot of physical storage. When COVID hit, this underground facility mostly closed, and there weren't really plans to fully reopen. As of this month, there are 350,000 pending requests for immigration histories. Chantel's history is sitting in those caves, the holdup, it's costing her time and also money. Sure, she expected some pandemic delays, but not this bad. You know, what she said to me was, isn't this supposed to be the most advanced country in the world? Why is it that what I'm up against is just a locked door and there's nothing anyone can do? Lawmakers are starting to pressure the government to get moving. One wants to know how the record keepers plan to get back to normal given the fact that other agencies have already gotten back to work. The basic thing you've got to understand about the immigration system is that it doesn't run like most modern systems we know. You know, it runs pretty much entirely on pen and paper. You have to mail everything in. They're actually piloting a program where you can pay your fee by credit card. But in order to do that, you have to mail a form in to get permission to use a credit card. So that should paint a picture. The National Archives and Records Administration told the journal they kept staffing in the Kansas City facility at 25 percent because it's a high transmission area. They also said they started splitting shifts in two to process more requests. The Australian Open is going on right now, and often in tennis, most of the attention goes to the teenage phenoms. So we were really interested in a new 538 story about the sport because it's original in a few ways. It looks at elite wheelchair tennis, where the best players tend to be older. Okay, so this is a 538 story. So of course, it's got all these telling numbers, and that data shows on average, the top 10 players in wheelchair tennis are five years older than the top players who use their legs to compete. 
The author is also a disabled person himself. He talks to some of the top players to see what exactly is going on here. The oldest woman in the wheelchair tennis top 10 is 41. And she started using a wheelchair after a motorcycle accident when she was 21 years old. She said part of the reason para-athletes are staying in top form at an older age is because many of them started their athletic careers later in life. And that's often because they came to wheelchair sports after an accident like hers. This year's Open was the last for star wheelchair player Dylan Alcott. Last year, he won all four Grand Slam tournaments plus the Olympic gold medal. Now he's 31 and says he's retiring. He's an Aussie, as you'll hear in this clip from Channel 9. And in his farewell speech on his home court, he talked about the growing popularity of wheelchair competition. It's not all around the world when every single locker room we go into, there's wheelchair tennis on. And every single professional player, the top 10 men, women, they're all watching, they all know, and they all know now. And it's because it started on this court right here together. So I'm very thankful. So thanks. You can find all those stories and more in the Apple News app. And when you're in the app, keep listening to hear narrated articles from our News Plus partners. We'll talk with you again tomorrow.